Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, Ezra chapter 8. Thus far in Ezra, we have traversed an uneven landscape that's just been full of details and dates and kings and history, and I applaud you for hanging in there. So before we begin Ezra chapter 8, let's pause. Take kind of a deep collective breath. We're going to jump into our hot air balloon and float upward for a panoramic view that puts what we've covered up to this point in perspective. The most important feature that immediately catches our eyes is that Judah's exile experience is over. And many Jews are now making their way back to Judah to reestablish their homeland and their temple. The next thing we notice is that Ezra consists of two major divisions. The first division is chapters 1 through 6, and this was the period that dealt with the time before Ezra comes onto the scene. And it is during the time of the temple reconstruction. Chapter 7 to the end of the book, and I remind you we're going to start chapter 8. Chapter 7 to the end of the book are then concerned with the time when the priest and Torah teacher Ezra becomes the focus. And this happened well after the time when the temple project was completed. So if we were to construct a timeline, we find that the entire book of Ezra encompasses a period of only about 80 years. The starting point then is the first year of the first king of the Media Persian Empire, King Cyrus, which is about 538 BC. The ending point is the seventh year of King Artaxerxes, a later king of Persia, in about 458 BC. By the way, let me take just a minute to say that I misspoke last week when I said that the seventh year of Artaxerxes was 483 B.C. I'm not quite sure where that came from. Anyway, the significance of the first year of King Cyrus is that it was in this year that after defeating Babylon and taking over their empire, he emancipated the Jews and he urged them to go home to Judah. And indeed, in Cyrus's first year, we find that a Jewish leader named Zerubbabel led an exodus of several thousand folks that consisted of common Jewish citizens, priests, Levites, and they all returned to their homeland. However, it shouldn't escape us that while Judah is the Jews' homeland, it is still only one of many provinces that were part of and under the authority of the Persian Empire. Many of the Jews left their homes in parts of Persia to take up residence in the city of Jerusalem. Others returned to reclaim hereditary land holdings in rural parts of Judah that they had lost when Nebuchadnezzar deported the bulk of the population of Judah to Babylon. But what's key to remember in the context of the book of Ezra and to everything that's going to happen from here forward in the Bible is that no more than perhaps 5% of the exiled Jews ever returned home to Judah. The remainder chose of their own free wills to remain in the Gentile world that was now the Persian Empire. And while the specific reasons for making such a choice obviously were varied, the overriding factor was that most Jews alive at the time of Cyrus were born in captivity. They were born in the Babylonian Empire that had only recently been conquered by the Media Persian Empire. For the majority of Jews, the Persian Empire was home. 
the only home they had ever known. And yet, because only about 70 years had passed since Nebuchadnezzar first attacked Judah and he sent the first wave of deportees to Babylon, and it would not be uh, for as much as 20 years after that until yet another attack brought the final wave of deportees to Babylon that it came even close to emptying Judah of its Hebrew inhabitants. So there were many hundreds of elderly Jews alive at the end of their Babylonian captivity who still remembered that holy temple that Solomon had built in all of its glory. But they also remembered that catastrophic day that this magnificent edifice, the house of God, the center of their religious lives was destroyed. That devastating memory was seared into their psyche, into their souls, and they were desperate to erase it. Thus, when they were offered the opportunity by King Cyrus to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild that temple, naturally, it was the elderly who were the most zealous to go. But it wasn't the same with the younger Jews who had never seen the temple, never made a pilgrimage to it for a biblical feast. The younger generations had never had the opportunity to take their firstborn sons to the temple and redeem them as commanded by the Torah. They had never brought an animal sacrifice with them to atone for their sins and watched as a priest laid that butchered animal onto the altar. They had never been purified from uncleanness by entering a mikveh under the watchful eye of a priest so that that living water that they submerged under washed away their ritual defilements before God. So up in Babylon, the system that the Jews had formerly relied upon, the temple and the priesthood that was to keep them in good stead with God, was no longer operative. It was the priests who had long ago been assigned the duty to teach, to enforce the laws of Moses. And they alone had the right to perform those atoning and sanctifying rituals that were critical if a Jew hoped to maintain harmony with Yehovah. So up in Babylon, the knowledge of the Torah, which had already greatly diminished for many years prior to Nebuchadnezzar invading Judah nearly vanished. What remained were Jewish cultural traditions and customs. But along with it, new ways were created to deal with this impossible situation of having no means to atone or or to purify. See, this was a conundrum that the Lord fully intended for the Jews to experience. Because that was as much the point of their exile as was the loss of their homes and their homeland. These newly contrived ways, while seemingly pious and in and of themselves not necessarily bad things were nonetheless man-made and therefore these new ways accomplished little in God's eyes except to make the captive Jews feel less uncomfortable and more religious in their foreign surroundings prayer replaced animal sacrifice houses of meeting and worship were created in lieu of temple gatherings Much later, these new houses would be called synagogues. Non-priests, or at least non-practicing priests, became the new worship and religious leaders. These new ways were the beginning of Judaism. In some cases, they were the end of actual Torah observance. The first group of returned Jews led by Zerubbabel, dedicated themselves to rebuilding the temple. But their efforts were frustrated by the locals who consisted of a handful of Jews that 
had somehow avoided deportation by the Babylonians and of foreigners who had moved in and taken over the fields and the orchards and the vineyards that the deported Jews left behind and there was a mixed breed now of Jews who had intermarried with these foreigners. But the most vocal group who resisted the rebuilding effort was the Sumerians. And together, these various opposition groups harassed and threatened and boycotted and complained to the Persian authorities and thus Zerubbabel was only able to lay the foundation for the new temple before all work was brought to a standstill for many years. But you know, God wasn't pleased with this lack of perseverance, sincerity, faithfulness exhibited by the returned Jews towards rebuilding his house. Their fears, their discomforts were excuses, not legitimate reasons for the delay. These same Jews that had abandoned the temple rebuilding efforts, instead focused their time and energy and wealth on building up their own houses. And we hear that some of the homes they built for themselves were lavish. The Lord responded to this by sending two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to warn, to encourage the people to get back to work and build this house. His message was clear and unequivocal. There would be no fellowship between the Jewish people and their God without that temple. Now a key principle was reestablished through God's prophets. Oh, how important this is. Return to me and I'll return to you. Return to me. I'll return to you. Please notice what is said here. It's so very important to every worshiper of the God of Israel and especially for those who might have fallen away. When we distance ourselves from God, it becomes our responsibility to reverse course and to return back to Him. God will not chase us down. God will not impose himself upon us. It is we who must yield, turn around, and return to him and ask to come home. And the Lord says that those who sincerely do that, he will accept back. There is perhaps... No better illustration of this principle, no sweeter story told, I think, than when we read of a rash young Jewish man who rebelled against his father, left home, lost everything, saw his error, and returned home hoping he would be accepted. Let's pause and read this familiar parable. Because even though this is a famous New Testament story, like all principles found in the New Testament, it was much earlier established in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Turn your Bibles to Luke 15. Luke chapter 15. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, turn to page 1314. We're going to start reading at verse 11 and go through 32. What a great story this is. Again, Yeshua said, A man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the state that will be mine. So the father divided the property between them, and as soon as he could convert his share into cash, the younger son left home and went off to a distant country where he squandered his money in reckless living. But after he'd spent it all, a severe famine arose throughout that country, and he began to feel the pinch. So he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him in his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him any. 
Last, he came to his senses and said, Any number of my father's hired workers have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'm going to get up and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and started back to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with pity. He ran and threw his arms around him and kissed him warmly. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to his slaves, Quick, bring out a robe, bring the the best one, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet. Bring the calf that's been fattened up and kill it. Let's eat, let's have a celebration for this son of mine was dead, but now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's been found. And they begin celebrating. Now his older son was in the field and as he came close to the house he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked, What's going on? And the servant told him, Your brother's come back and your father has slaughtered the calf that was fattened up because he's gotten him back safe and sound. But the older son became angry and he refused to go inside. So his father came out and pleaded with him. Look, the son answered, I have worked for you all these years. I've never disobeyed your orders. But you've never even given me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Yet this son of yours comes who squandered your property with prostitutes and for him you slaughter the fattened calf. Son, you are always with me, said the father, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead but has come back to life. He was lost and he's been found. Return to me and I'll return to you. The prodigal son was not chased down by a frantic and distraught father. The father waited patiently for the son to change and then to return to him. If the son had never had a change of heart and been deeply humbled, if he had not taken up a contrite journey of repentance and returned to his father, no reconciliation would have ever taken place. But when he did come back, in humility and in sincerity, his father opened his arms, welcomed him, and celebrated. It is precisely that same way for us and will remain so forever. We must make the first move. We must make the journey back to God. And I'll tell you, at times the road may be unpleasant. Uncomfortable might cost us everything. But make no mistake, He will not journey to us. But what does returning to God mean? What does it look like? Does it mean to simply feel differently in our heart? Does it mean to change our intentions so that our thoughts are godly and they're no longer rebellious? Does it mean to read our Bibles, pray, and wait for God to change our circumstances? Now while those things are certainly important and they're valid, it is ultimately our actions that reflect our true intentions and our inner selves to God. It's our actions that are the catalyst for being re-accepted by the Lord. We can't think one way and act another. Those Jewish returnees like Zerubbabel longed in their hearts to rebuild the temple. But they lacked the trust and the sincerity to actually do it. So, says God, all the blessings that come from a renewed relationship with Him shall be withheld. And what action did He require of the Jews for those blessings to be unleashed to rebuild the temple? 
regardless of the personal risks involved. Thankfully, Zerubbabel and the Jewish leadership paid heed to Haggai and Zechariah. They ignored the threats. They obeyed and they believed God. They believed that blessings and not more trouble were going to be the result of rebuilding the temple. And it and because the temple was the symbol and it was the place of fellowship between God and His people, they completed their work and the temple was inaugurated into service in 515 B.C. or about 25 years after their initial return. You know, that represents many needless years of pain and frustration and lack of blessing. A quarter century's worth It was several years after this time, about 480 B.C., that we hear of the story of Esther, which is essentially the story of the Diaspora Jews up in the Persian Empire. And we'll certainly not review the situation that forms the basis for that story, except to say this. In Esther's day, around 35 or 40 years after the temple temple had been rebuilt and put back into operation. Around 95% of the Jewish population still lived outside of Judah by their own choice. No doubt while the Jews of Judah were being heavily influenced by the temple and the priesthood, but it was still so that they practiced their religion in a very different way than what was being practiced by the bulk of the Jews throughout other parts of the Roman, uh, of the, rather the Persian Empire. You know, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly what was being taught and observed during the time of Esther, but her story and the book of, uh, Bible, of the Bible that's named for her gives us some pretty good clues about what was going on. Perhaps the most disturbing thing we find is that nowhere, not once, in the book of Esther is God mentioned. Not one time. It is true that in the Greek version of the Bible, entire new sections were added to Esther with the Lord made front and center. But it has long been known that these were late additions and they were added because this omission was troubling, not embarrassing, to Jewish religious leaders that an entire book of Holy Scripture would not call upon the name of the God of Israel even one time. However, I say this tells us a great deal about the mindset of the diaspora Jews of that era. In fact, in the book of Esther, even in Daniel, who lived through the Babylonian period and on into the first part of the Persian period, just before the time of Esther, we don't hear of any of the biblical feasts or holy days being celebrated, not even somewhat, or of the Sabbath being observed. So the story of Esther is framed in a way that has the Jewish people of the Persian Empire delivered from the vicious hands of the anti-Semitic Haman good for you by the Jewish Jewish Esther and her elder relative Mordecai who had found favor within the Persian royal court. Now this story of Esther is written in the style of a comical irony because no explanation is given as to why Haman was defeated (laughs) in his genocidal plans except that everything he thought was a slam dunk to give him power and favor with the king turned upside down at the last minute due to the cleverness of Queen Esther. Even when Esther was considering the potentially fatal move of appearing uninvited before the king, her husband, that she might plead for the lives of her people, she sent out word for the Jews in Susa to fast for three days. 
but there was no mention of prayer or fasting unto the Lord or any such thing. Granted, we tend to read the word prayer into it when we read her instruction to fast, but it's not there. And by no means can we be certain that the fast was in connection with prayer. And then when the story concludes and Haman and his family, thank you again, are executed, and Mordecai is promoted and the Jewish people are allowed to take up arms and defend themselves, no credit whatsoever is directed towards the God of Israel. In fact, this improbable victory is celebrated how? By the creation of a new holiday, Purim. And of course, Purim is not a God-ordained feast or celebration. Rather, it's a man-made observance somewhat like the 4th of July. There is nothing wrong with creating what is essentially a man-made national holiday. But here's the kicker. When it, com- when it seems as though it is man-made holidays that are celebrated at the same time that the God-ordained biblical ones are set aside, then it reveals a disturbing mindset and trend. The reality is that according to all reasonably verifiable historical and biblical records by Esther's day, the Jews of the diaspora had little knowledge of God's word. They preferred to go by whatever traditions and celebrations that their leaders invented. And to our knowledge, they didn't observe any of God's feasts or the Sabbath. They had a desire to assimilate to one level or another and to whatever Gentile culture they lived in. And living in the land that God had set aside for them through Abraham was secondary to their own desires of living within whatever stability their family had established in whatever land they were currently settled. Torah observance and adhering to the law of Moses had become so diluted with new traditions and customs that it would be difficult to categorize exactly what to call it. For lack of a better term, I call it early Judaism. So a couple of weeks ago, as we turned the pages of our Bibles from Ezra chapter 6 to Ezra chapter 7, around 20 years or so had passed since the story of Esther. Ezra was alive. He was apparently residing in Babel during this great threat against the Jewish people that is the thrust of the book of Esther. And while that danger would certainly have mattered to him, what we also see is that he was also obviously aware that the practice of the Jewish religion throughout the Persian Empire had become greatly compromised. Thus, he had devoted himself to studying the Torah until he had become its foremost expert. And when he compared what he read to what he observed going on around him, to what he heard was going on at the temple down in Jerusalem, he determined to find a way to institute reforms. And interestingly, he decided that the reforms had to begin with himself and with the priesthood. Since we don't know very much about Ezra before he journeyed back to Judah in 458 BC, we really don't know whether he tried to reform the practices of Judaism in the diaspora, but it's pretty hard to imagine that he didn't. Ezra was himself a priest with verifiable lineage going back to Eleazar and Aaron. So it makes sense that he determined he could make the most impact by reforming the temple and the priesthood and to deal with Jewish society in and around the capital of the Jewish religion, Jerusalem. After all, most of those Jewish folks had left an established life behind 
and made the long and arduous journey back to Jerusalem where living was going to be more difficult. Thus, what motivated most of them was religious zealousness. Even if some of the doctrines they clung to and observed had become watered down or maybe even perversely altered. So in the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra somehow gained the confidence of the king and he was able to obtain near carte blanche to venture to Judah, investigate the religious practices of the temple and the priesthood, establish the law of Moses as the civil and religious law for Jews throughout the entire satrapy of beyond the river, and to appoint judges and officers in order to decide cases and prosecute violators. And in addition to a great in addition, a great treasure trove of gold and silver gifts were given to Ezra by the king and by his court and by others to be used at the temple in Jerusalem. What we also see from Ezra <coughs> as he determined to take many priests and Levites and, and temple workers back with him is that essentially he put together a takeover team that was loyal to him. He would go to Jerusalem with his own team of priests and Levites and he would now have the ability to influence the temple operations as he saw fit. So up to the beginning of chapter 8 of Ezra, we first see the zealousness of a group of Jews to rebuild the temple and reestablish the priesthood as well as all the struggles it took to achieve it. But then because of this long lapse between the exile to Babylon along with the destruction of Solomon's temple and the time the priesthood was once again up and running in Jerusalem, much had been lost as regards to knowing God's word common practices that had become part of everyday Jewish life up in Babylon accompanied the returning Jews, even including the priests. And so those practices became entangled in proper Torah observance. There is no evidence that there was evil intent on the part of the priests. It's probably fair to say that it was their ignorance of the Torah that was the main culprit. The doctrines created up in Babylon certainly seemed right to them. Why should they change them just because they rebuild a temple? Besides, the goal of rebuilding the temple was to reestablish fellowship with God and to revitalize the main symbol of their Jewish religion and they accomplished that goal. But Ezra's aim was different. That was not his goal. He saw that while the intent might be good, the practice of the Jewish religion was not. Accepted social customs ruled the day, far more than God's laws, even for the priesthood. Yet it had become so normal that no one, not even the religious leadership, seemed to even notice no one stopped to examine their practices, their beliefs, and then to compare them against the Word of God. To see if what they believed, what they observed was even correct. No one but Ezra. And what he found set him off on a movement to replace man-made doctrines with the holy truth. It's 458 B.C. as we open Ezra chapter 8. King Artaxerxes' letter of authorization in hand, Ezra now organizes his trip to Jerusalem. Open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1127.
These are the heads of their father's clans. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me, Ezra, from, from Babel during the reign of Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes the king. Of the descendants of Pinchas, Gershom. Of the descendants of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the descendants of David, Hattush. Of the descendants of Shekaniah, of the descendants of Parosh, Zechariah, and with him 150 males officially registered. Of the descendants of Pachat Moab, um, Elihoenai, the son of Zechariah, of Zechariah, and with him 200 males. Of the descendants of Shekaniah, the son of Yachaziel, and with him 300 males. Of the descendants of Adin, Eved, the son of Yonatan, and with him fifty males, of the descendants of Elam, Yeshiyah, the son of Ataliah, and with him seventy males, of the descendants of Sheftiah, Zevediah, the son of Michael, and with him eighty males, of the descendants of Yoav, Obadiah, Obadiah, the son of Yechiel, and with him 218 males. Of the descendants of Shlomit, the son of Yosfiah, and with him 160 males. Of the descendants of Bevai, Zechariah, the son of Bevai, and with him 28 males. Of the descendants of Azgad, Yochanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 males. Of the descendants of Adinokam, the younger ones whose names were Eliphelet, Yael and Shmayah, and with them sixty males, and of the descendants of Bigvai, Utai and Zakur, and with them seventy males. I assembled them by the river that runs to Ahava, and we camped there for three days. I reviewed the people and the Kohanim, the priests, but found no Levites there. So I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shmayah, El Natan, Yariv, El Natan, Natan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders. Also for Yoyariv and El Natan, who were men of discernment. And I gave them instructions for Edo, the leading man in a place called Kasfia, and told them what to say to Edo and his brother, who were in charge of Kasfia, so that they would bring us men to minister in the house of our God. And since the good hand of our God was on us, they brought us uh, Ish Sekel from the descendants of Machli, the son of Levi, the son of Israel. Sheriff Yah with 18 of his sons and kinsmen. Hashaviah with Yeshiyah from the descendants of Merari and 20 of his kinsmen and their sons. And from the temple servants whom David and the princes had assigned to serve the Levites, 200 temple servants, all of them recorded by name. Then, there at the Ahava River, I proclaimed a fast, so that we could humble ourselves before God and ask a safe journey of Him for ourselves, our little ones, and all of our possessions. For I would have been ashamed to ask the king for a detachment of soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies along the road, since we said to the king, The hand of our God is on all who seek him for good, but his power and fury is against all who will abandon him. So we fasted and we asked our God for this, and he answered our prayer. Then I separated twelve of the chief Kohanim, chief priests, along with Sheriff Yah, Hashaviah and ten of their kinsmen. And I weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the utensils for the house of our God contributed by the king, his counselors, his princes, and all Israel presented there. I weighed out and handed over to them twenty-one and a half tons of silver, three and a, half, three and a third tons of silver articles, three and a third tons of gold, twenty gold bowls weighing twenty-one pounds, and two vessels of fine burnished bronze as precious as gold. And then I told them, you are consecrated to Adonai. The articles are holy. The silver and gold are a voluntary offering for Adonai, the God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them before the chief Kohanim and Levites and leaders of the father's clans in Jerusalem in the rooms of the house of Adonai. So the priests and the Levites received the consignment of silver and gold and the articles to bring to Jerusalem to the house of our God. On the twelfth day of the first month, we left the Ahava River to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and surprise attacks along the road. And in time, we arrived at Jerusalem, where we rested for three days. 
On the fourth day, the silver, gold, and articles were weighed in the house of our God and handed over to Merumot, the son of Uriah the Kohen. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Pinchas. And with them were Yozavad, the son of Yeshua, and Noadiah, the son of uh, Benui, who were Levites. The entire consignment was numbered, it was weighed, and at the same time the total weight was recorded. The exiles who had returned from captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve young bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and twelve male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering for Adonai. They also delivered the king's orders to the king's viceroys and governors beyond the river, and these gave their support to the people and to the house of God. Before we descend in our balloon back to earth and we get into studying the details of this chapter, we spent so much time with the historical. I'd like to pivot towards the spiritual. What we've seen up to now in Ezra becomes amplified in chapter 8 as a God principle rises out of these inspired words that goes unnoticed if we don't look for it. That God principle is this. God's grace is brought about on this earth by means of a cooperative venture with human beings. That sounds so simple that perhaps we can just kind of slough it off by borrowing those familiar words from the Geico TV commercial that begins with, everybody knows that. And while it is true that our human deeds and actions do not save us, and that all salvation is through God's grace, the other part of that equation is that it is human beings who are authorized and commanded to bring the message of God's grace to other human beings. And how this works is nearly impossible to to fathom, let alone to describe. Some kind of a mysterious sequence is initiated when God makes a sovereign decision to place His word of truth inside of a non-believer. And then, a believing human is used to speak the gospel to that same person. In a reaction, somewhat like mixing the two parts of epoxy glue together, the truth is activated and it solidifies. Both ingredients are needed and yet both ingredients are inactive, not usable in the physical world until they're mixed. It is intentionally designed so that one part works cooperatively with the other part. So, a believer speaks the gospel truth as a kind of a catalyst to the already spiritually but invisibly prepared non-believer. And presto, we have another member of the kingdom of God. What actually happened? Why did the Lord choose to do it that way? You know, I've heard those questions asked in Bible study groups numerous times. Why did He not accomplish the same thing some other way? Why can't the Lord just do the whole thing Himself? Rather like using super glue. You know, you just poke a hole in the top and squeeze the tube. And it works. As is. Isn't that actually kind of closer to the definition we have in our minds of what it means that something was accomplished by God's grace, that humans played no role whatsoever? Yet instead, the Father has decided that to bring salvation to each person on this planet, He would use the most unreliable most inclined to fail tool in his entire holy toolbox other human beings 
just crazy. There is no greater example of this than in the Lord Yeshua Himself. The Apostle John says this in John 1.14 The Word became a human being, became flesh. And He lived within us. And we saw His Shekinah, His glory. The Shekinah of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Christ is the ultimate expression of the God principle of God's grace operating hand in hand with human effort. Only unlike us mere mortals, Christ was some kind of impossible to explain amalgam of 100% humanity with 100% deity. I don't know. How do you get to that? And while we'll never attain that, you know what's funny? We're expected to operate as though we can. As human beings, believing human beings, we're supposed to always be available as God's holy catalyst, ready to be added to His spiritual epoxy as He applies it to individual by individual by individual. Yeshua used a little different analogy to make this same point. In Matthew 9:35 through 38, he said this. Yeshua went about all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and weakness, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harried and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his Talmudim, his disciples, the harvest is rich, but the workers are so few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers to gather in His harvest. See, the harvest was spiritually prepared as that act of God's grace. But He also deemed that it was not to be gathered except by who? Human workers. Human workers. A cooperative venture between God and humans. And dear fellow believers, in addition to you being God's workers to bring in that harvest of prepared souls, and to you being God's catalyst to make spiritual glue, it's also up to us to right the wrongs when our Judeo-Christian institutions have broken down and drifted away from the truth in some kind of mixed up religion that reflects mankind's mind but sets the Lord's truth aside. Humans created the problems. Humans are to correct the problems. Matthew 5, 1-3. Rather, Matthew 15, 1-3. Then some Pharisees and Torah teachers from Jerusalem came to Yeshua and they asked him, Why is it that your disciples break the traditions of the elders? They don't do natilat yadim, that's hand washing, ritual hand washing, before they eat. And he answered, Indeed, why do you break the commandments of God by your traditions? in cooperation with God's grace and in obedience to His Holy Spirit, the vehicle that the Lord has chosen to reveal the truth that the entire Bible is alive and well, that His laws and commandments are, as He said, righteous, just, and forever, and that Israel was, is, and shall always be His precious treasure, that vehicle is human beings. Although the Lord could choose to use His legions of angels to bring the truth to His worshippers, He's chosen instead to use mere humans. 
This alone demonstrates the enormous value and tremendous responsibility that God places in humanity. Ezra, by the unction of the Holy Spirit, cooperated with God's grace. Ezra, despite the Jewish social norms and customs of his day, decided to go back to God's Word, the Torah, and find out for himself what it said. He took what he learned to heart and he changed. And he knew that something had gone terribly wrong in the religion that the Jews were presently practicing. You know, it's not that they didn't love God. It's not that they had chosen a different God. But due to their false beliefs and wrong doctrines and incorrect observances, God wasn't pleased with them. And so, all that the Lord wanted to do through them couldn't be accomplished. So, Ezra assembled a team of those who were willing to leave behind the comforts of all they had known. The ease of not troubling their minds with having to unlearn wrong things in order to relearn right things. And of course, they were going to have to contend with the heartbreaking protests of family and friends as they began a life-changing journey that necessarily left the majority behind. And as we'll discover next time, the journey was long, it was hard, and it was terribly dangerous. But Ezra trusted God so much that he declined an offer of a military escort. Rather, he decided if this was really of God, then they had nothing to worry about. And that's whether they succeeded in getting there or they didn't. Thus the recorded words taken directly from Ezra's memoirs as he prepared for his coming journey were, So I took courage, since the hand of Adonai my God was on me. And I gathered together out of Israel key men to go up with me. We'll begin next week by going through this interesting list of these key men of Israel who signed up to go on this important mission with Ezra back to Judah.